0: Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Alex Kaysar, a professor of history and social policy here at Harvard Kennedy School. Thanks for joining us today, Alex.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So in recent years, there have been a number of large-scale protests in countries like Iran and Egypt about questionable election returns. Here, too, in the United States, we've seen complaints from both sides of the political spectrum about potential election fraud. Is voter fraud a threat to the authenticity of U.S. elections? And if so, how do we counter it?
1: Well, I I think that that there are two phenomena going on. One one has to do with voter fraud and the other with voter suppression. And the charges that we're seeing in the United States, and this has been going on for about a decade, but it's accelerating, uh, are twofold. Um, The The Republican Party has been engaged in a lot of different allegations about uh, potentially widespread voter fraud, and the Democratic Party has been charging in fact that there is no uh, voter fraud or precious little, uh, but that the uh, Republicans are looking for voter fraud as an excuse to pass laws to suppress people and keep people from voting.
0: Now, uh, in your research, have you found either one of those to be true or more true than the other?
1: Well, I, I know that uh, we're supposed to, one is supposed to sound completely uh, nonpartisan, but uh, in fact, and this is true, I think, really for all scholars who have looked at this, um, the fact is that uh, voter fraud for the last several decades in the United States has been an almost non-existent problem, and the kind of voter fraud that would be prevented, for example, by having a requirement to have a government issued photo ID, which is what a lot of the laws are about now. Um, that, the kind of fraud that would prevent that would be prevented by that is a kind of fraud called voter impersonation fraud where I go to the polls and I pretend to be you. You know, if you require a photo ID that will, pretend, that will prevent that. But voter impersonation fraud is extremely rare. I mean, Indiana In Indiana, the first state uh, which in this new wave of legislation passed a strict photo ID law, the sponsors of the law themselves acknowledged that there was no documented case of in-person voter impersonation fraud in the history of Indiana.
0: Wow. So if voter fraud isn't a problem, then why has there been so much scrutiny about it in recent years?
1: I think um, I, I think that that the the scrutiny, the talk about it, is grounded in concerns about very close elections. I mean, it's not unreasonable to suspect that there might sometime be voter fraud. I mean, uh, there's certainly a historical record in which voter fraud has occurred, perpetrated by both parties at different times. In American history, I think that there is also an apprehension uh, that uh, that groups of people that that poor people and people who are racially and ethnically different somehow are going to be prone to being manipulated by the Democratic Party um, and uh, led to uh, engage in, 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 you know, in, in electoral fraud. I mean, I think it's an a- it's an apprehension on the part of some people. I think it's a political strategy on the part of others to pass laws that might reduce the participation of of um, people who uh, who would be more inclined to vote for the Democrats than for the Republicans.
0: So do you think this is related to the country's shifting demographics especially, you know, after the turn of the century? Yes,
1: yeah, sp- uh, speaking sp- and I uh, yes, I think that, that it's very much related to the sh- it's to the shifting demographics. I think and I think the historical parallels here are actually very interesting. Uh, the word uh, vo- voter, suppre- vo- well, voter suppression as a word becomes really current in the United States only in the, about the last 20 years. But it has a predecessor, which was in the 19th century, a, f- a phrase called vote suppression. That appears in about the 1880s and 1890s and becomes widespread. And it's referring to the suppression of new African-American voters who were enfranchised uh, after the Civil War. And then it's also, it's referring primarily to that and then also to methods designed to keep immigrants from voting in the North in the late 19th century. And I think that, that what we're seeing now is, in some significant measure, a response to having uh, a fully politically participant African-American population since the late 1960s um, and an enormous, once again, an enormous Im- immigrant population, an increasingly large percentage of which uh, is becoming enfranchised through citizenship. Uh, Let me add one note here, a comment here, a conceptual comment that I think is is worth making, which is we talk about what voter suppression is. I think it's important to distinguish voter suppression from disfranchisement. Disfranchisement is actually passing a law that prevents particular individuals um, because of who they are or particular groups from voting. Voter suppression seems to me to be the strategy you engage in when you want to keep certain people from voting but you can't politically or ideologically disenfranchise them.
0: Okay, so if uh, so it sounds like from your writings that you see voter identification as an element of voter suppression. I do. Now I do. you've also written that there seems to be wide public support for those kinds of laws. Can you tell me I mean why do people? believe in these laws if they so if as you have said, they don't have a basis in reality
1: i think I think that that the the argument in favor of the laws um has you know it has been twofold. one is to say, oh well, there's a lot of fraud and I don't know whether folks out there really think there's a lot of fraud or not. I mean, it's easy to suspect fraud, but the other piece of the argument is to say, Um, Having a voter ID is just a normal and a natural thing in modern society. You have to have an ID to get on an airplane. You have to have an ID to get into an office building in in major cities. It's not such a big deal. It's not a burden. And, you know, and if you have to have an ID to get into an office building, shouldn't you have, you know, you know, voting is even more important. And I think people accept that as a commonsensical argument. Um, My own retort to that or response to that, and here I disagree with some some of my customary allies in the voting reform uh, community, is I don't think that the response to that should be simply to say well no there's no fraud let's not do it. I, I would prefer to say okay if you're concerned about that then let's create a system where everybody in the country gets a national voter ID uh, and where it becomes the federal government or the state that's responsible for doing this. It's not up to the individual uh, to go out and try to find this I.D. Uh, at, at some office someplace, then make it the responsibility of the state or the federal government to make sure that everybody has an I.D. There will be a transition period, it will be costly at the outset, but then you'll create that system and then you don't have to worry about fraud anymore. With, and you can do that without disfranchising people or without pre- preventing people from voting in the meantime.
0: So you wrote uh, an article in the Harvard Magazine Um, And it was titled, Voter Suppression Returns. Now, you previously mentioned vote suppression in the uh, 19th century, but when did that die out? If it's returning now, how long has it been gone or has it really just been there in small bits until recently
1: well i think i think it's uh i think it's it always lurks around um as does fraud always lurk around which is why in some sense and you know in principle i'm not against anti-fraud measures uh i think that it's always there in terms of the the historical patterns well you know once once the south had succeeded by 1900 in keeping African-Americans from participating in politics at all. They didn't have to engage in voter suppression because there were almost no registered African-Americans who could vote, right? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so, so that worked until the 1960s, late 1960s. Uh, the story in the North is somewhat different, but basically what you have is immigrants and their children assimilate. They all become citizens. They acquire more, more political power. They're, they're harder to act against. Um, and you also have, and this is a somewhat separate but intersecting a mid-20th century story or story between the 1930s and the 1950s, which is the decline of the urban political machines. Um, so the whole issue is pretty quiescent for, uh, for, for quite a while. You also have a large region of the country, the, the south, which is a one-party region. Mm-hmm. You don't really need to suppress the vote if, there, if you don't have competitive elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you had, and there were a number of states in the north which were, which had a dom- which were dominated by the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in the electoral, I'm not quite sure I want to say chaos, but the electoral changes and transitions that have occurred since the 1960s Uh, that you start seeing different kinds of contested elections, uh, different kinds of national party patterns, uh, and thus the return of voter suppression.
0: So if voter ID is a form of voter suppression, have there been documented examples where it's been shown that voter ID has suppressed turnout in particular elections?
1: It's a very good question. And, And let me say, I mean, I don't want to say that voter ID is a form of suppression in that form. Voter ID as is currently proposed and in the laws that are currently being passed um, in the United States. We have only anecdotal evidence. Uh, you know, we have you know, the famous example of the nuns in Indiana, the elderly nuns in Indiana. What, what example is that? Um, I think it was in the, in 2008 actually in the primaries, j- shortly after the law uh, went into effect and a group of elderly nuns who did not have driver's license who had voted for years um, where you know, somebody sort of drove them to the polls and they weren't allowed to vote because they, 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 didn't have a photo, they didn't have a government issued photo ID. We have many anecdotal examples. Calculating, trying to demonstrate um, the impact of these laws at, on turnout is extremely difficult and, may, and it may have sort of insurmountable methodological changes because the fact is turnout varies a whole lot anyway. Um, and it can vary depending not only on national elections but on, on how close sta- you know particular elections are within a state. Um, so it's very it's can be it's gonna be, people are gonna are organizing to try to measure this year um, in those states. But I, th- I it's very difficult to see to, to have a discernible drop in turnout that you can clearly say is the consequence of these voter ID laws. I th- the flip side of this also is that a lack of drop of, turn, uh, uh, you know, if turnout stays stable, that doesn't necessarily prove that the laws aren't having an effect either.
0: So what got you into this this whole realm of uh, research in the first place? What inspired you to look into voter, voter ID laws, voter suppression?
1: Well, it it followed... In a certain sense, from the uh, a long book that I wrote, or wrote and wrote and wrote another edition too. I mean, I, I published a book about the history of the right to vote in the United States in uh, in t- in 2000. I mean, it was a very well-timed academic book. It came out eight weeks before the 2000 election. Lucky. But yes, yes. I was I was accused of manipulating uh, the world in order to sell <laughs> books, um, and then I did a new edition, taking things up through 2008. Um, they they came out in in 2009, and those books had already started dealing with some of these issues because what I see voter suppression as is a continuation of what has been a very long conflict and struggle in the United States over voting rights and over, you know, whether we should have universal suffrage and should we practice universal suffrage. So that it, it I, I, I see this Uh, somewhat to my surprise, I have to say. When I was writing the book in the mid-'90s, I wasn't particularly alert at all to to a contemporary dimension of this. Um, But somewhat to my surprise, I see this resurfacing, and it bears a lot of similarities to fights over the franchise, which I've seen earlier in U.S. history. So that's what got me into it.
0: Great. Well, Professor Alexander Kaysart, thank you so much for being with us on the PolicyCast.
1: I'm very glad to be here, Matt. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.